Uh, Nicole Sauce. Yeah. I haven't talked to you in a very long time. When I met you, we both worked for libertarian nonprofit organizations in the kind of liberty movement, as they say. And I remember at some point in there, you were kind of starting to post on Facebook more and more about farming and gardening. And pretty soon it was like, Nicole's just kind of like off in the wilderness, raising a farm or something and no longer working in the liberty movement. And then I left and started a company. And, you know, I kind of loosely followed you since then, but I recently, this is all set up uh, to just welcoming you on to (laughs) the show. I recently heard you on a podcast called uh, Unloose the Goose, which is a very fun and interesting podcast. Yes. Just about living free, about living free to the maximum potential and everything from using cryptocurrency to trying to expatriate um, to avoid oppressive governments to how do you, you know, live as independently as you can so that you can, you know, grow some of your own food to kind of the whole range from philosophical to practical. And I heard you say something in there and I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't talked to Nicole in forever. I got to talk <laughs> with her. You, you said, you, you said something like you escaped the hellhole of the liberty movement or the libertarian <laughs> nonprofits. And I haven't heard very many people sort of describe like, Thank God I got out of there besides me and a few other people I know very closely. So that prompted me and you have an amazing podcast living, um, living free in Tennessee. You've been, my wife's been listening to it. You've got, you know, all kinds of fascinating stuff you're doing, making and roasting your own coffee, growing your garden, telling other people how to do it and kind of run a farmstead. But I want to start with that transition of, uh, do you consider yourself an escapee from the libertarian nonprofit world? And what does that mean? Yes, I do. And they, so there are a lot of people there who I love and they're working really hard on what they're working on, but the environment that they're in is using a system that doesn't work to change the system. So it's like, you know, you're betting against the house in a casino expecting to win. Sometimes you get ahead, but the house always wins. And so I found that environment to be very demoralizing. And then there was a lot of competition among the organizations and competition's not bad, but it got nasty a lot. And, and I thought, well, we should all be kind of banding together to maybe make a difference. And, you know, I'm, I'm an altruistic sort of positive person. And that was not a very positive environment for me. I started having health problems. That was what really got me out of there. Um, cause I was working all the time to try to change policies and, you know, failing a lot and it was really frustrating and I felt like my life was not my own. And here I am like talking about freedom, not free myself. And the day I realized that I was the head of a nonprofit called Spark Freedom responsible for several families livings to raise money and get them projects. And after I thought about it, I had a talk with the employees and I said, listen, you can bring me to any fundraising thing you want. I will help you as an advisor, but you've got 12 months to replace the revenue that I'm raising or use me to raise it. And I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. And then you guys can have it and run with the organization. And that organization has since gone out of business. It's so funny what you said about you were not living free. I, 
so that's kind of been my my story. I kind of had that realization in waves, and yeah. I remember the first wave was this was probably. 15 years ago, when I stopped watching or following the news, I realized that being up on current events and the news and sort of politics proper was making me unfree. I wasn't in control of my own moods. And I felt, you know, kind of a slave to whatever somebody decided to report on. And I had that realization and I cut off the news. And then I was kind of, you know, moved away from politics directly into kind of policy advocacy and then more like education in the liberty space. But one of the the other realizations was in this nonprofit sphere, I can see how I'm becoming trapped and and you kind of like the job gets easy easier if you're mm. at a place that raises a lot of money, you can make a good salary and you kind of end up in this little inbred circuit that's like it's just like it's very bureaucratic like I remember always feeling like, man, all these libertarian <laughs> nonprofits like haven't they ever read Mises's bureaucracy <laughs> and and like for me, it was, if I'm talking about making the world free, I got to I gotta live it and I got to help other people live it through direct experience. Otherwise, I feel like I'm saying one thing, but I'm living a different thing. And seeing people, especially in the DC-centric libertarian circuit, which I lived there for two years and was like, when my wife and I were like, we got to get out of here. Yeah. Um, that was just sad. It was sad to see that. So it is really funny. And what you said about competition is funny because the whole idea, the whole theory behind a nonprofit is, well, you know, the, trying to, let's say, advocate libertarianism or something, that that's not really going to win in the market. So we have to protect it from the market by giving donations and kind of having this nonprofit. And similarly, oh, well, people will like lose their jobs if they're really loud about radical ideas and they work at a corporation. So we're going to protect them, kind of like what they say about tenure. We're going to protect them by funding them to work at this nonprofit where their job is to be radical. And somehow the opposite ends up happening. They still end up competing with each other and they get less radical. (laughs) Well, and the other thing is, it's a really good indication if your idea is good and if you're executing it well, if there's money in your bank account when you're running a business, right? Yep. You don't have that feedback in the nonprofit world. You, you kind of have it on if you can raise funds or not, but not really because um, the scale of what you're doing is so much larger, I think, from a contracts coming in standpoint. And then it's a lot more about who likes you than if your project's a good idea. And as much as we talk about there are checks and balances in place, it goes back to your drinking buddies. Yep. And, and that's not unusual in any nonprofit environment where you're raising money, right? You need to make your donors feel like they're part of the club. It's so similar to, to politics in that sense that the feedback loops are so slow. They're so long. So you can, you can win over, you know, the founder of a nonprofit can win over a donor who's a multimillionaire that says, wow, I really love this founder. And then they commit to give $50,000 a year they're, they don't, they're, what they slice off in their mind to say, this is what I'm doing for charity. Maybe I give 200 grand a year, 50K of it goes to this one organization who the founder pitched me years ago and I love them and they send me updates. They're not going to change that unless yeah. there's some ex- super insane circumstances. And so that's just essentially just coming in over and over again. No matter that founder could have died, the, the nonprofit could have strayed entirely. As long as they send a glossy packet to that guy or the founder can go and have a beer with him once in a while or whatever it is, it's like you get this kind of thing where I, I remember just the, the way that programs, like, oh, I'm running a program. 
here's my budget. I just know ahead of time that I'm going to have X amount to spend for this year. Yeah. And I'm going to, and my incentive is to spend it all. And it's going to keep, and so it just, it becomes this very, like the number of times where you knew employees or entire organizations were just like full of dead weight that didn't do anything. And they just go drinking all the time. They would just keep getting their budget, keep getting their money. Um, and then just the lack of accountability, it, it just creates a lot of, um, a lot of sad things. A lot of people that I think are underutilizing their talents. Yeah. And I would say like, it did that to me. I didn't do as well as I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. And uh, my idea was apparently not a good one for the Liberty Movement. So I didn't get that feedback for five years though, because of that artificial cushion. I, I should have known years sooner that what I was offering was not what was wanted. And, um, and I take full responsibility for that. Right. Like, so it's not like the Liberty movement sucks because they didn't like my stuff. It's the, it was not what they wanted and it was not helping them the way they wanted it to. So I needed to go out of business with my organization much, much faster than I did. And I didn't know that till you know, you get through the emotional part of something like that. You don't know it for years. It took me years to figure out, you know, I probably at this point I, I could have realized that, but I didn't have that bank account feedback. <laughs> you know now if i have a bad coffee people don't order it well i, I know i love that too because i think back i never you know growing up i never thought like i want to start a business i want to be an entrepreneur but i think back from my very first nonprofit job i created a new program within the nonprofit, and i was always fighting with them about what i wanted it to be and what they thought yep. it should be and i wanted it to be more radical than they want and like it was kind of like creating business, but I was still, I had this safety net. I was within this organization. And then at the next place I went, I created another new program or I would try to take a program in a new direction. And I think now if I would have had more self-confidence and just realized like, I should just go start this as my own thing. I should just go start it as a business. And I always, as a market guy, I always loved the profit motive and thought it was superior to other forms of just in terms of providing incentive and information. But I was like, could come up with reasons why nonprofits are okay, whatever. But like, I finally had the confidence when it got to a point, like I have to go build this thing by myself as a brand new thing. And it's a for-profit thing because I want to know if I'm really making a difference as fast yeah. as possible. I don't want to just, I, I and then like, I'm, I felt like I was almost da a danger to myself. And I think you can relate because <laughs> you're a very affable person as well. Yeah. I was good at fundraising. I trusted my ability to raise money from, to raise donations more than my ability to build a viable business. And so I was like, I could launch Praxis at the time as a nonprofit and I could probably raise several million dollars to get it started, but I'm going to be flabby and undisciplined. And I'm not going to know if I'm creating value for the customers. If I do that, I got to make this a nonprofit and rely on that market feedback. And man, was that good for me? Yeah. Well, I'd say the other mistake I made was, um, accepting dollars with strings attached that I, if I was going to do it my way, it would be different. Mm. And I'll never know if I had done it my way, if it would have been successful because I didn't. Right. And mm. that was, that was a bad decision. And, and that's part of why, like the day I made that decision, even before it was executed, because it took me another year, I think, to really get that transition done to, you know, to finish up my commitments that had happened because you don't want to just say, well, I took money for something and then I didn't do the program. Right. That took a long time. And it was, it was like a switch went off inside and I realized there's a whole world out there of me doing things, being responsible for myself, helping other people start their own businesses, which is something I love to help people do. And 
I hadn't been doing the thing I loved to do at the organization I was running because I was too busy doing the administrative part of the organization I was running. That's why every business I run has like zero employees. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like employees. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. I mean, I do like some employees, but I don't want to manage a hundred people. I always say that I am really good at managing people that require zero management. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We do, I do a communications thing called Spark Communications Group where everybody who is in the group has their own company. Mm-hmm. And we just pass things back and forth based on who has the skill to do it. And it works great. We put out high quality stuff. Customers know that they're working with different companies if they come in and work with us. And there's not, there's not a lot of things to fight about because you know if, if I want to have somebody else do a website I've sold, I know exactly who to hand it to and they get it done and they yeah. get it done well. And then, and that's, that's to that, to your point, like I'm not managing an employee every day saying, did you, did you get your stuff done? <laughs> I, I wonder if you, I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you struggle with this early on and then how, how you think about uh, this today. And that is, what does it mean to help make the world more free? Because I know that's something you're passionate about. You wouldn't have gone into that, you know, nonprofit sector if you didn't. And I know I was, and I'm thinking of this because I have a friend who who also used to work in in kind of the similar sort of liberty movement nonprofits, and he doesn't any longer. And he was at some event um, with a bunch of other people who who did work at some of these nonprofits. And one of them said, "So, what do you do for the liberty movement?" And he was like, "Oh, I, I like I don't work at any nonprofit or whatever. I like have a job." Or and and the guy was all like flummoxed and confused, right? It's <laughs> kind of, you know, it's kind of like your mom, like yeah. you grow up in the church. And if you don't go to church on Sunday, like you must be a sinner. And if you do go to church on Sunday, no matter what else you do, you must be okay, right? Something similar that like what it means to help make the world more free is to work at a nonprofit organization um, versus what you're doing now. And like, I see you now and I'm so inspired and I think you are expanding the sense of freedom and what's possible for people's lives. But I'm curious how you see that now. What does it mean to contribute to advancing freedom and how, and was that hard for you? Did you feel like you were giving up on that mission initially? It was, I'll start with your second question. It was really hard to give up and very difficult emotionally to process it. I mean, you have, you know, you have all your close friends from the movement. A lot of them don't talk to you when you leave. Um, some of them do though. Like, you know who your real friends are. Like Richard, Especially Richard if a lot of them are professors and you start a company <laughs> telling people to not go to college. <laughs> yeah, I know. You did, you did a much worse thing than I did. Jeez. Yeah, I send people your way all the time. I love what you're doing. Um, so that part, it was hard to walk away because you had your tribe. Hmm. And I remember when um, an organization in the Liberty Movement did some um, industrial psychological work on on the people like key people in the liberty movement. And one of the things that surprised them is there's, you know, do you need to be part of a group or not need to be part of a group? They were scoring high on need to be part of a group. Well, okay. So libertarians are known for going their own way. (laughs) And, and I thought about that and I think I score high in that, by the way, that's why what I do is build a lot of community. And, and I thought, well, yeah, you're not part of the group that is the standard mainstream opinion, but you are a pretty tight knit group. And, and I think that sense of belonging hurts when you leave, but at the same time, it's so freeing. And what, what I see like the best impact that any of us can have on freedom 
is helping other people realize they just have to choose to be free. Mm. Like you, you, and that's why I love Unloose the Goose, right? How can we walk around what's, what is? It doesn't mean we don't want to push back on government overreach, which is all government in my opinion. We mm. can go there next if you want to. But it's also everybody, like people are just asleep. And when their eyes start opening up, then they get scared. And I think what I do at Living Free in Tennessee helps people. It's kind of nurturing, right? Well, come into our community and ask us some of these questions that other people would ridicule you for who are vehement freedom people who haven't like learned how to lead somebody along through the, the process of figuring out how to be free. And let's get you started. Because once people start, they start seeing more opportunities. Once they start seeing opportunities, they become more independent, whether it's starting their own business or figuring out how to get other parts of their life in order and to choose how they want to live and live that way every day. And then they, in turn, help the next person up. And I think, I think you're doing that with Praxis a lot. Yeah, it's powerful when you realize, look, I mean, it's what Adam Smith said about the market, right? I, I need to appeal to people's self-interest rather than tell them, hey, my arguments are better than yours. Here's a theoretical case why it makes more sense to you know, eliminate taxes or whatever. So you should just intellectually agree with this versus, hey, I think I can show you how to improve your quality of life today by pulling your kids out of public school or mm -hmm. by moving to a place with less regulatory burden or by opting out of the state in some way or taking on some independence. Let me show you how you, you will actually benefit, like your own life will improve. That's just so much more powerful in kind of creating people who value liberty and live free than just, just being stuck in the realm of arguments. And don't get me wrong, I love philosophy and I love those debates, but it's, yeah. it's just a whole different ballgame. And it's so much more enjoyable too and rewarding to see people come along in that way. Yeah, and at that point, I don't care who they're voting for and they shouldn't care who I'm voting for, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because it, once you separate all of that noise and just talk about the tangible, how to make, how to make yourself more independent and free, you eliminate a lot of what's distracting you from getting your stuff done. So I want to talk about what your, when you left Spark Freedom, what did you start doing right away? And then kind of like work us up to all the things you have now. I know you have a podcast and a website and a coffee business. Um, I'm not sure to what extent. It sounds like you also have some other maybe business consulting stuff you're doing. I would love to kind of hear when you left that, sort of safety net of the, the regular paycheck from the nonprofit. What did you do first and what have, what have you built since? So in, in a, an episode of poor planning, I left my nonprofit role and stopped taking my salary while still working there to help the organization hopefully endure. And I went from a really good salary to zero. And of course, um, when you don't have savings and you have a mortgage, what you do next is panic. <laughs> So I panicked and I started trying to do anything I could think of to make money from selling my duck eggs to offering consulting services to, I had already started the podcast as a creative outlet because I needed just a creative outlet that I wasn't getting in my administrative role at the organization. And so to trying to get a membership portal there and have like, how can I add value? And that first year, I probably brought in about $11,000. Um, 
for our listeners, small, $11,000 isn't very much. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of a side hustle approach. I was renting a, a thing on my property as an Airbnb. And by the end of that year, I had had the epiphany that I love roasting coffee. And I did a Kickstarter and pre-sold a bunch of coffee to be able to buy a commercial roaster and started building the brand Holler Roast. At the same time, I was doing some um, corporate sorts of engagements for marketing position development, mm -hmm. where I would travel for a week and go with another facilitator, and we would you know, spend all week with their executives coming up with marketing positions for product lines. So that, that actually kind of kept me afloat <laughs> that first mm -hmm. year. Very thankful for it. And as I got into that, I started, I mean, I was way overcommitted. And then I started realizing, having time to think about what motivates me. And what, what I love to do is empower other people to start businesses and to, to take those steps towards freedom. And the podcast was the obvious tool for that but it feeds all the other things. So I, you know, I mentioned the coffee on the podcast and people who listen to my podcast buy the coffee. I talk about coaching services, which I now offer. Um, and people hear about it on the podcast and they do coaching service or they, they buy coaching services from me. And then those people started recommending to other people and it just grew from there. And so <clears throat> now you kind of have these three, um, these three things, you have a podcast that has a membership component that's bringing in some revenue. You yes. have the coffee business yeah. and then you have the consulting kind of helping people get their, you know, coaching, get, getting their own things going. Is that, is that sort of what, where you spread your time and how do you divide it among those? So it, it's, they're all one thing to me. <laughs> okay. Yep. I mean, I, makes, and, it, makes it easier. Well, and I do have rental, like long-term rental properties. I've been aggressively building that for my retirement. Nice. So that I have the rents. Um, but so the coaching is, is meant either to empower people to start things or if they need to figure out lifestyle design. And because as you know, I did a lot of marketing and web mm -hmm. development back in the day. I still do that as part of the coaching piece. And what happens is probably I'd say 20% of my time is on that. The majority of my time's on the podcast, which is really my own marketing arm. Yep. I make some money off of workshops and membership, but it doesn't pay everything. And then the coffee has been where I'm really pushing hard this year to grow it because over time that will become a lifestyle business. Yeah. And so are you doing that all the coffee out of your home? You're, you're you know, importing raw beans and roasting them and then packaging them up and selling them? How, how does the whole operation work? I'd love a breakdown. Yeah. So I work with importers and, and taste coffees every year. So if I'm going to have a coffee from Mexico, I'll taste a bunch of coffees from Mexico, choose which ones I like best, and then we'll build them into, the, into either our coffee of the month, or if I think it should be a year-round coffee, I'll add it as a standard product. And I ship them in by the pallet. So that's 10, 150 pound bags is a minimum for a pallet. So we get, and it's like lifting a 150 pound bag of beans, by the way, is worse than lifting a 150 pound dead person. It's like floppy. <laughs> and so we call that coffee fit here that day <laughs> when we have to get from the truck into the roasting camper. I have a separate camper on my property where I do all the roasting and packaging. 
And then it's almost, I would say I'm 99% mail order. Wow. So COVID. So you're like Walter White out there in your coffee roast. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And it's great to have it all there and not in my house. Mm. So mm -hmm. if I'm canning tomatoes or whatever, I'm not worried about cross-contamination with the coffee. And, and so the, and then you, are you packaging them all up yourself and shipping them out? Yeah. So mama sauce comes in at Christmas time to help me with that. And I have one other person who will help me with that, but most of it is just me packaging it up and shipping it out with a little note. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, how many, if you don't mind me asking, is it, is it like a, a monthly subscription coffee type of a thing? I have both. So you can go to hollowroast.com and just order coffee. And, and usually they'll have a drop down that says one time order or subscribe. And then I have a coffee of the month where it's from a different country every month. And it's a little bit different lineup every year. And we send those out to our subscribers. They often just buy, you know, three, six or eight years worth of that in advance. And then I ship you your coffee on a schedule that comes up. So there's two options there. And we are actually about to expand the roaster. So I, I have been roasting from seven in the morning till nine at night a lot lately. Wow. And then I caught my roaster on fire, which <laughs> this is how this goes. There's a giant, so I do liquid bed roasting, which is, um, it. I'm sorry, fluid bed, I always say liquid. Fluid bed roasting, which is basically like a giant hairdryer. And there's heat underneath and the beans are moving. And so you can go to a darker roast without a burnt flavor. Mm. And people, so it's a totally different flavor than you get from like a Starbucks or something like that, who's using um, a pan with an arm that agitates the beans. And um, what happened is my blower went out and the bottom layer got heat and the top layer did not. And I didn't see that it was happening. And it turned into a giant incense burning chamber that smelled like burnt rubber meets <laughs> coffee. And I, it took me two days to clean all of the burnt on coffee oil off of it. And then I had to figure out what was wrong and I replaced the blower. And that whole process took two weeks of orders coming in and not able to roast. And at oh. that point I thought, you know, I need a bigger roaster anyway. It's time for an upgrade. So now we're, we're, we're going to do a Kickstarter that launches in theory this weekend, assuming I get my website done to pre-sell coffee again to get a bigger roaster because it's just, it, the business has been growing pretty fast. So dealing with that uh, coffee roaster burning incident and all the stress involved, was that better or worse than dealing with the administrative work at a nonprofit? Better. Why? If, if you want to put on a, on, a, on, a, on a scale of one to a hundred about does Nicole like doing paperwork of any kind, I'm at about a negative 10. <laughs> it pisses me off to fill out fields and forms for the government, first of Is, all. <laughs> isn't it amazing how often... Like I found this for myself. I'll be doing something for quite a long time before I have the realization. I don't think I like doing this. And then it's not till I quit doing it that I realize, oh my God, I hated doing that. Why did I do it for so long? So don't do things you hate, right? Exactly. I've, I've heard someone say that before. So you're, you're really big on um, gardening and it sounds like uh, canning and, and that type of stuff as well. Is that simply because you enjoy it and it's fun or do you, um, are you kind of like philosophically interested in the idea of being able to live, uh, you know, have a lot of things that you're producing for yourself that you consume? It's both. Um, I think when you are able to create wealth that is not taxed, it's like 
participating in counter economics. I, mm. I bought a dollar package of seeds and I got $100 worth of tomatoes this year, right? That $100, how will they ever tax me on that? They won't. Therefore, I didn't have to earn $120 to buy those tomatoes. So there's a piece of that. Also, our our industrial food system is so unstable that we, I mean, we saw the shortages when the, sh the, the shutdowns happened in March this year. Hmm. That's nothing compared to what could happen. And if you have figured out how to cover your basic needs in other ways besides going to Walmart once a week and going shopping, you're in a better position if that happens. You may not get the variety you want. Like it's wonderful that you can go to the store and buy imported Swiss chocolate. And I do, right? It's wonderful that I can send an order off online to, you know, to get my favorite bourbon shipped to my door. That's all wonderful. And I participate in it, but I also think for me, one of the things that got me through that first hard year is I didn't have to buy toilet paper or food for that whole year. I bought some, but I didn't have to buy much, which meant my expenses were down. It made that tradition, that transition a lot easier. Mm. And that's because I'm gardening. It also feeds the soul to be out in the sun playing with plants in the dirt, right? There's a, there's a time of reflection. And when you stop working all the time and start doing other things you ha your mind has time to process things and you 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 grow you learn and you come up with new ideas which is yeah. a curse also but you do <laughs> it's incredible the power of that like <clears throat> when i decided that i i just had to make it a priority to take a walk outside every day at least 30 minutes usually 60 um it's like my ability to do good work and just be happier just went off the charts, just off yes. the chart. Like, like I've never found an activity, maybe, maybe daily blogging um, was in the same level in terms of the, the creativity that it spurred, but going on a walk just outside every day or like, you know, similarly doing yard work or something outside. And that is not related to, at least for me, not related to how I earn my paycheck helps me think so much more clearly about all of those things. I, I think that's like an aspect of freedom that's not a, it's not a philosophical or political freedom, but it's like a really underappreciated aspect of what it means to be a free human being is to, is to be in control of your mind by taking charge of your circumstances. Yes. And your schedule. Mm. Yeah. So it's very easy as an entrepreneur or a solopreneur, which is probably more what I am to work all the time. I'm kind of doing it right now. <laughs> um, and not build in time to just live. And if you don't make that time, it will never be there. You will just work all the time if that's your leaning. What do you see as, because one way that I sort of solve that, and I don't know if this is exactly right, but is to essentially blur the line between work and living. Like we're doing this podcast. This is just a fun, enjoyable conversation for me. It's not mm -hmm. work technically, but in another sense, me talking about the ideas I believe in and having other people like you on and putting it up on a podcast sort of builds my presence and audience. And that is good for the businesses that I'm running. So there's a way you could define this. At, and, and like, I'm in my office with the door closed. I'm not down with the kids. Dad's mm -hmm. working. But on the other hand, I'm also just doing things I'm interested in. So I wonder if, you know, with your coffee roasting, your gardening, your podcasting is part of the solution 
to try to not have such a stark dichotomy or do you see it really valuable to have clear lines around work versus not work? I think I'm a hybrid of both of those. So I, if you do a job that you love for the rest of your life, then you will love the rest of your life. And so when I work with people about lifestyle design, I ask them first, what are the characteristics of things that make them happy? Not, do you want to be a coal miner? <laughs> right? Because you need to find a job that fits. And I did this for myself in my 20s. And one of the things I really loved was travel. So I wanted something where I could travel. Well, I got that in spades and hated it. Mm. I hated being out, out, out of town all the time. You know what? That I, is I, so good to hear <laughs> someone honestly say that. I've Very few people have. I, so many young people I work with, they, they want to be the type of person who wants to travel, but a lot of them, <laughs> I don't think actually do enjoy travel, but they like think they ought to. So yes. like some people really do love it. I do know yes. people who, who do, but there's so many that are like tortured because they think it makes you more cool to like travel. And they, you know. I want to be home with my dogs at night, having a cocktail in front of my house, like watching nature. That's what I want. Yep. <laughs> and I, but in my twenties, I mean, I did go through a time where I loved it and I was traveling to Germany and back for work. It was awesome. And then, you know, you, you meet somebody and you want to actually be home with them. <laughs> yes. And, and so I, so I do think to the extent that you can build your life or your work life balance, so to speak, to where you're enjoying work. And same thing, I'm, I'm at work right now having a conversation with you about freedom. This is great. I love it. I am not doing my monthly finances right now. <laughs> I am going to be doing them because I haven't gotten those off my plate, but my, my, my goal for my business is eventually I don't do those. I just look at a report mm -hmm. and, and that's when I have all my systems in, you know, set up in a way that makes sense. It's been a little difficult figuring it out among three disciplines, how to get that all tracked right. And I'm almost there. Once I'm there, that's off my plate. Hmm. And then I won't spend that miserable two hours every month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk about uh, the A word, anarchy. Uh, you, anarchy. You, woo! You alluded to, um, you know, government overreach being sort of government in general and uh, got, got me all excited. Um, and you, <laughs> you know, from what you're talking about, and, and I know from listening to Unloose the Goose and the circles, you, you, you know, hang around in that you're probably familiar with agorism. You're certainly living in that way, which is kind of just the concept of, as you mentioned, counter-economics or um, finding a way to, rather than trying to oppose government or reform it, to work around it and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maximize freedom as you can. Not like nobody's born thinking, government is illegitimate or uh, <laughs> government should be reduced to the size. So it's small enough. You can drown it in a bathtub, maybe even smaller, right? Like I'm curious your own journey philosophically and even like, did you start off interested in politics and then go into this nonprofit world? Or did you start out conservative or liberal? What's kind of been your intellectual journey on your, you know, your freedom philosophy? I would definitely say I started life as a rabid socialist who was probably, who thought communism would work. Are you serious? Yes. Where'd you grow and, up? In Oregon. Oh, oh, well now it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I got out of college and I would say my family is full of entrepreneurs. So 
I also had instilled that you can build your, I, this idea I could build my own thing from nothing from a very young age hmm. if I just worked hard. And I had a good work ethic growing up. So there were seeds there. There were lots of seeds. And I studied to be a German teacher. And what attracted you to communism? It's fair hmm. and it takes care of people. Hmm. Yeah. And we should be fair and take care of people. And, you know, I didn't dig very deeply. <laughs> and when I moved to Portland, um, I was going to be a public school teacher, decided that wasn't right for me. I ended up working at a, a cultural training center um, and language training center that turned into a translation software company. <laughs> and as part of that journey, I had to commute from outside of Portland into downtown Portland. And I watched them take, I used to, I'd like, I would get up, get ready, walk out, hop on a bus, 25 minutes in town. And then they put in light rail. And my, what was a 25 minute commute turned into an hour and 20 minute commute because you had to get a bus, transfer, take light rail, and then walk or transfer to another bus to get to work. So I started driving because I calculated if I took a second job, how much I could earn to pay for my parking pass that was 120 bucks a month, which isn't that much. Mm -hmm. So I could spend 25 minutes getting to work and not the other, you know, basically I got an extra hour, every, uh, two hours every day. And so I started teaching uh, on the side and I would talk to people about how public transportation is so important and blah, 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 and smart growth this. And one day I was sitting there and I thought, wait a minute, this only works if I make all the decisions. That's not fair. And the company where I worked was on the same floor as Cascade Policy Institute. Mm. Do you, and so, do you know John Charles there? Or yeah. No? Uh -huh. Yeah. So smart growth, like Mecca man from a freedom perspective. And I ran into somebody in the hallway, Kurt Weber, and was talking to him about it. And he's like, well, you should talk to John. And I went in and talked to John and eventually ended up working there. Hmm. So, and when I came into the freedom movement, I was like, man, these people can't communicate for crap. <laughs> they sound like assholes and they're not. That's the funny part. But if you ask them directly if they're an asshole, they'll be like, yes, I'm an asshole. No, you're not. You actually care about people. That's why you want this thing that works rather than this thing that doesn't work that says it helps people. But you need to admit that your thing helps people. <laughs> that's the, pro you know, the core communication problem of the Step one. According admit to Nicole Sauce. What you're doing is a good thing. <laughs> what you're doing helps people. It doesn't help every single person, but it helps more people than the other thing. So, so that's how I went. And then I was in, you know, just started, you know, I started reading Hayek and all of that. Like I hadn't been exposed to any of that hmm. and really got into, I mean, I went to a couple of Atlas events that were great where they had salon discussions. I loved those when they were doing those. I don't know if they still are. And along the way, you know, I did what everybody does. It's like, you become libertarian and then you're like, well, anarchism actually looks like it might work if we just evolve rather than have a violent takeover and enforce it on everybody, which would not work if you're an anarchist. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, and so uh, the longer I think about it, the less intervention I think should happen. Yeah. Yeah. It, it happened with me as well. It was kind of, I grew up very conservative and mm -hmm. like predisposed to think that like business is fine and low taxes are good, but, but 
but just sort of standard conservative, you know, beliefs. And as I started to follow arguments, economic arguments against regulation and taxation, started reading some Milton Friedman and stuff, the logic just kept extending farther and yeah. farther against regulations for, again, you know, regulate drug laws and things against personal vice and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like dragged kicking and screaming to the <laughs> conclusion that like, it's logically consistent. And it just like, it kept happening. There just, there were, there were no good justifications. Every libertarian argument is an even better argument for anarchism. And yes. To, to argue all of those things that, you know, sort of free market limited government ag- ar- advocates argue and to stop short requires a new set of arguments that are positive on behalf of the state, none of which hold up against sort of public choice royals and whatever. So I kind of like, it was a very long evolutionary process. And by the time I got there, it wasn't like, I'm an anarchist. Like, I don't even like the word or like I'm bomb throwing. I'm a, it was just kind of like, yeah, like I actually think the state is both evil and unnecessary and hope to reduce it as much as possible. Like that's yeah, certainly in your own it. life, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and there's something about like separating the need to evangelize or proselytize people and almost like the more radical I became, the more relaxed I became about mm-hmm. how my beliefs were different. And, and, and I know, I wonder if you noticed this too. I know I'm rambling a little bit, but no, you're not. people, people let, me get away with anarchy way more than they did. So like back in the day, if I were like, I think, you know, taxes should be cut by 50%. People get all up in arms and debate with you and fight with you or, you know, public school spending should be reduced. If I say, well, I don't even think taxation should exist. People don't even get mad because they don't even know what to do. They're just like, Oh, I've never thought of that before. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? So I felt like the more radical I was, like the less social cost I paid (laughs) because it doesn't fit into a known paradigm. I'm not a known enemy to people because they don't even know what I'm talking about. And then it opens up for like interesting conversations, you know? Yeah. But it's also in the tone. Like if you're not militant about it and you're you're willing to let them just think taxes are good and should be higher. Yeah. Because you know you're not going to change that person's mind if that's how they are. I'll never forget, and this was when I was doing fundraising, I met a guy, I'm sure you've probably heard of him, named Lou Carabini. Mm-hmm. And he has a very large, I think, uh, gold and silver exchange business that he built over years and years. And he's, he's donated to a lot of sort of liberty-minded causes. But he's this like radical dude. And he wrote a little book called Inclined to Liberty about, you know, ba- basically anarchism. And he's like the most relaxed, chill guy ever. And he was like, yeah, they... Um, for some, some event, because I think he had served in the military when he was young or something, they brought me out on an aircraft carrier and they like flew me around and it was amazing. It was so cool. And I was like, but don't you like think the military shouldn't even exist and you don't like war? He's like, yeah, of course not. But like aircraft carriers are really cool pieces of machinery. Why would I say no to that opportunity? And I remember just being like, oh, not only does he believe in freedom, but he's so free that he's not threatened by people who don't. And I didn't have that at the time. And I really, I really admired that. He was like, oh, I don't care. Like, why would I try to convince my neighbor? I tell my neighbors that I think voting is silly, but I don't try to convince them to vote or not. Like, what do I care? You know? And that was like a big moment for me. Like, and I always think of that Camus quote by like, live, live so free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. Instead of just having to go tell everybody all the time why yeah. they're wrong and they should value freedom, just live free and be like unthreatened by others around you that that's a that's just been a huge key for me in in quality of life yeah well and it's it's really hard at first to let other people think what they want to think 
but that's freedom, right? Yeah. That's the hardest part of three freedom is it's really none of your business. <laughs> Learning what's none of our business can be hard. That's that's that is such a good that's such a good point because it, it's very easy to to be a big fan of freedom, sort of philosophically, intellectually, but to realize when the rubber hits the road that you really would kind of like to get all up in people's <laughs> business. <laughs> yeah. You're so, making a bad decision. <laughs> well, so let me ask you, um, you know, I think since COVID, especially living in big cities is less attractive than ever to a lot of people and people yeah. who aren't, aren't even necessarily, you know, thinking philosophically about this stuff are like, Oh my gosh, I just, I want more personal freedom. Are you talking to more people than ever about, Hey, I'm thinking about, moving to some acreage and raising some chickens and having a little mini farm. And what is your advice? Can I do this? Is it lonely? Do do you have conversations like that right now? All the time. And my podcast cast listenership has gone through the roof, right? Yeah. People are looking for homesteading advice. And I, I always say, well, don't commit, like don't jump before you know if you really like it. Because I can, like, I think everybody should get out of the cities right now, especially the way that the COVID stuff was handled by the officials in the cities. Yeah. And then, you know, some of the key regions that are having the rioting, how that's being handled, like, look carefully at that. And, and when you move, look to where you want to be in, you know, in relationship to what decisions are being made there locally. Because just because you're in the country does not make you immune from government oversight. I've got a friend in another county in Tennessee that went through the worst building code experience I've ever seen anybody go through in my life. Hmm. Where in my county, I mean, we have codes, and, but they're, they're, they're trying to help you be safe, not trying to make your life hard by making you jump through another hoop and buy another permit. So you want to know where you go. And then I always tell people, go to somebody's homestead and help them do the things you want to do. Like if you think, I want to raise rabbits for meat. Go find somebody who has rabbits and say, can I come out and you show me how to process a rabbit? And then you process that rabbit, you take it home, you cook it and you eat it. I learned this from a very good friend of mine, Nick Ferguson. And I was like, yep, that's brilliant. Because once they've gone through all that, if they still like rabbit, then they know they're ready to raise them for meat. Because what I see a lot of people doing is raising meat animals. And then D-Day comes and emotionally they're not prepared for it. And it took, it was an evolution for me to go from killing fish is okay to processing chickens to my first pig, you know, and Mm. rabbits were way down on the list for me because they're really cute. Yeah. So I'm finally there now, but it's taken years. Man, that's, that's just great advice that, you know, I mean, it's exactly what, you know, I I tell people on the career landscape, like to the greatest extent possible, do the job before you get the job, get, get, you know, intern, shadow, do projects, offer to apprentice. So you know what it's like. I wonder if, and maybe you know about things like this. Like, is there a an Airbnb for hey, come come live on this farmstead for a month <laughs> and learn if see if you like country life. Uh, Woofers, the World Organic Farm or Farm something something I forget. Woof W O O F. You can go and in exchange for living, you can work on an organic farm, hmm. and. You will learn how hard it is to grow food (laughs) as part of your experience. A lot of homesteaders do workshops. So I'm doing a chicken processing workshop on September 21st that is sold out because people are so interested in this. And that's a way to process a chicken 
go home with your chicken and a, you know what to do when the time comes and B, you know, if you hate it or not. And when I was advertising that, I got some really funny comments like, oh man, I'd never do that. Okay, well, good. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. The other people coming want to know how to do it, but they, I think they also want to know that yeah. they can do it. And you'll find pork processing workshops and you'll find how to do a raised bed sorts of workshops. There are lots of ways that you can get involved. Airbnb um, and sites like that will have people with homesteads on it where you can have a homestead experience. I know they have all sorts of new rules right now, but you can do that. Um, go to hip camp, see if there's any homestead camps. And I mean, it's pretty easy to try before you buy on, on the homesteading front. So let me ask you the biggest question that I know I have, and I know many others like, I love the idea of being out a little bit, having a little bit more independence, being able to do a little more with a, a garden and some, you know, maybe even some animals and whatnot. But for me and it's, me and my wife, but especially for our kids, the, the loneliness factor, do you feel isolated living in the country? How do you deal with that? Is it like, well, as long as you're 30 minutes drive from a city that has at least 50,000 people, or is it, hey, you find ways to connect with online community or what is your personal solution? And what do you say to people who are like, is it too isolating to live in the country? It depends. So everybody's different in how much interaction they're going to want. And if they want a judo class nearby and what that looks like. So again, it goes back to designing your own life the way you want it. I am 35 minutes from a city with, I think about that many, probably 50,000 in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And they have a classical choir. That's mm -hmm. a community choir, which I sing in. And part of how I get some off homestead community is once a week, I go and sing with a bunch of people from a bunch of different backgrounds and we get to know each other. I have some really good friends from there. Hmm. Other people are perfectly happy to be out in the country by themselves with nothing. And there are a lot, like no contact, but there are a lot of digital communities around country living and homesteading. So you'll get that sort of fix from your, your Facebook or MeWe communities. It's really, it goes back to what you need. And if you do have a special interest, like I'm a classical singer, um, or you like swimming, or you like um, martial arts, or you're into CrossFit, look at what's there and how you're going to fill that before you commit to a location. Hmm. Because a lot of rural areas aren't as isolated as you think they are. And then once you get out here, what, I, what happened when I moved here is I thought I'd never see another person as long as I live. Okay. <laughs> And the first day my neighbor drove up and introduced himself and I'm closer to my neighbors out here than I ever was in the city. Huh. So we'll just, you know, light a campfire and everybody come over. You okay. Know, it, I mean, at this point I've got neighbors who all listen to my podcast and <laughs> we have dinner at somebody else's house every night during the week. So we cook for six. I cook for six on Wednesday. No, on Tuesday, Tuesday's my day. And then, you know, Wednesday I go to somebody else's house. <laughs> It's funny, the assumptions, I remember when we lived in DC, that was probably the most isolated uh, my wife and I have ever been in a very densely populated area. Yes. And when you think about when the rubber meets the road, even with kids, you know, you maybe two, three times a week, you go and do stuff with other people, at, you know, at the most. And if you live in a really big city, transportation and parking is a huge pain in the butt. And so even yes. though you're surrounded by people who are all strangers to you, you don't actually go out and do that much. We probably did less because it was all so much hard work. And you know, from the DC area, if you live in Arlington, crossing the river to DC yes. is like a, an event that no one ever does. Oh. And yeah. 
and you think about in, you know, say if you're in a country and you're 30 minutes, 35 minutes from, you know, a city, maybe you go to class, some class or your choir once a week, and maybe you go to church or something else once a week, and you got two or three times a week, and you're probably 30 minutes, like people that live in big cities, they take that long to go almost anywhere, you know? Yeah. Um, and you just, you think about like what it actually means. There, there is a sense and some people like just seeing a lot of people around them, but to actually connect, it's, it's kind of like a TK Coleman, my good friend. And I used to live in yeah. LA. We talk about the, the LA effect. People feel like I want to be an actor. And then they say, well, I've moved to LA. I'm halfway there. And they feel like they've made progress and they haven't made any progress at all. It's no. just sort of an illusion. Whereas the person who's like, okay, I live in Iowa. I need to be an actor. I got to work every day to make myself closer uh, I can't let myself off the hook by saying, well, I'm practically there because I moved to LA. So I think that idea of like community and connecting with people, it can be easy to be like, well, I live in a big city, so I'm off the hook and, and not ever really connect. And when you kind of have to deliberately, there's some ways in which you can maybe form more genuine connections. It's true. And I think also, um, I think the thing people miss in the country is going out to eat on a drop of a hat. Yeah. So for me, it's a 25 minute drive to go out to eat to 35 minutes. Most, I mean, we have a marina nearby that's open seasonally. There's stuff like that, but it's, you know, 25 minute drive, wait for your food, eat your food and drive home. So then I'm going to have one beer, not two beers because <laughs> I need to drive home and I couldn't just walk around the corner and go get a burger at the pub around the corner. That is when I lived in the city, I could do that. Mm. And so I went out to eat probably four or five nights a week when I lived in the city here. I haven't been actually in a restaurant since March 3rd probably when the tornadoes hit and everything got all messed up here. So, you know, it's, and I don't want to, cause I learned how to cook better. Yeah. Now it's like, I go to the restaurant. I'm like, eh, eh Look, it's okay. <laughs> a restaurant went from being a fun outing to one of the worst forms of torture. I have four kids between the ages <laughs> of three and 15, not only the bill, but everyone complains about their food. It's like, okay, forget it. We're not even going to do it. <laughs> Yeah, and see, I always reserve it for, I'm going out to Indian food or, so, or sushi or something that I don't make at home. I, I yep. can make sushi at home, but I don't make it at home. That's, that's what I consider fun going out to eat. <laughs> and then I plan it in advance. So I would love to just give you the last couple minutes to share any, any thoughts you have and then anything you want to, you know, letting people know where they can go and, and check your stuff out. Well, I think my main thought and it's how i want i want to you know what i want to give to the world is how you live is your choice even when you're in a situation where you feel like you have too many kids and you can't homeschool but you kind of wish you could or you have to work a job because you need money to pay your mortgage and you have debt those are all things that are what's happening right now and if you know you want something different, when you make the choice to do something different, you start asking yourself, how can I homeschool? How, how can I save enough money that I can have the kind of job I want? How can I do something different? You start seeding in your own mind the change mm. towards choosing freedom. And so I think what I see is a lot of people beating themselves up because they've gotten themselves into whatever situation is not a good fit. Um, don't worry about that. That's a wasted emotion. Start asking yourself, how can I do something different? And it's surprising how fast that can happen. If you do want to follow me or find out more about me, my website is livingfreeintennessee.com. And I put out a podcast three times a week 
I do, and you know, I do some Liberty rants, but I also do how to on homesteading and just encouraging people to take control of their lives and build their businesses and join in the community. From there, you can find my other services, which are life and marketing coaching at sparkcomgroup.com, but that's linked to my other website and hollerroast.com is my coffee. I love it. I know my wife was listening to your podcast and she said, uh, she said, yeah, I love it. Cause it's such an interesting mix of kind of, you know, philosophically talking about concepts of freedom and living free. And then, you know, how's Nicole's arugula doing? Uh, so it's got a, a nice mix of, you know, literally on the ground, the actual earth with, you know, ideas in the abstract. I share all my failures too, because homesteaders need to know you're going to fail. Yeah, that's good. That's I, good I, to hear. I killed a lot of green beans this year. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> hey, Nicole, thanks so much. This was awesome. I think it was great catching up with you. Thanks.